You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Matthew 11, 1 to 24. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets... And the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we reflect on this passage. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we ask now that you would send your spirit down with power, that these words might become for us words of life, that in hearing the words of your Son, Jesus, our Savior, we might know Jesus more clearly, and in knowing him, might find ourselves caught up more and more in the great love that he has for us and the mission he's called us on. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Uh, well, you may not know it, but you and I are currently living in one of the largest and fastest religious shifts that has ever taken place on the North American, on the North American continent. The data isn't as clear for Canada, and there's a chance uh, the data won't be as clear for Canada ever, but there's a sociologist, his name's Ryan Burge, you can follow him on Twitter, he's quite incredible, has a lot of uh, visual graphs all over the place. But he has been conducting with, with other colleagues one of the largest and most comprehensive studies which will be released fully at the end of August, uh, following through church attendance. And he's, his focus has been exclusively on the United States, but as far as his research goes, in the past couple of years, maybe the last 20 years max, but highly accelerated in the last three years, some 40 million people have stopped attending church. Uh, it's caught attention of sociologists, not even that are just interested in religious dynamics, just sociologists in general. They're calling it the great de-churched movement. Some 15% of people in the U.S. no longer attend church. Now, I don't know how the data is going to work out in Canada. Obviously, the quiet revolution in the 60s did a number to church attendance, especially in Quebec. And our country, by and large, uh, I, I don't think that de-churching has had quite the same effect, but I do think this great shift is going to have an impact to us uh, here in Canada. And I do think it's something that we've been experiencing. I'm sure you can think of a coworker or friend or neighbor who, say, prior to COVID, had some measure of church attendance Post-COVID, you're finding that they fail to attend with the, with the seriousness they once did. What's most interesting, though, about this research, as Burge argues, is he says there's no theological tradition, no age group, no ethnicity, there's no political affiliation, education level, geographic location, or income bracket that has escaped this phenomenon of the de-churching movement. If you know anything about church history, you know the 1730s to maybe the 1750s, we often speak of it as the Great Awakening or the First Great Awakening. This time when the colonies and over in the British Isles and even into Germany, where there was great uh, tra- change and a, a fervor all of a sudden for the things of our Lord. There was deep repentance and loyalty to Christ welling up all around the Great Awakening. And what are we going to call our era? Maybe historians will look back on it and say this is the Great Unawakening. I don't know, the great time of sleep? I'm not sure. But there's one thing that's intrigued me, and I'm going to have to move relatively quick through such a long and, and somewhat complicated passage. There's one thing that greatly intrigues me about this research is the sociologists are, are very concerned about how this shift in this de-church movement relates to political movements and how it relates to uh, various socioeconomic issues and how it relates to mental health and how it relates to scandals in churches. They're obsessed with following the way this data and this de-church movement has come out of this. But one thing that they won't touch, and I guess you can't touch because it's hard to quantify, is they won't deal with the ways in which doubt has come into the lives of of North American Christians, and this doubt has changed sort of what it means to follow Christ and what it means to participate in the life of a church. They don't seem to touch the nature of doubt and where it comes from, and I think if there's one thing that holds these 24 verses you just heard read together, it's this subject of doubt. Jesus is dealing with people who are doubting People who are unsure of who he is, and they have ample evidence they ought to know, and yet they doubt. He's pointing out the nature of doubt and where doubt leads. And what I want to look at this morning as we look at this passage is I think Jesus is telling us in the first half of the passage, there's a type of doubt that will accompany the life of faith. There's a type of doubt that will be part of your journey if you choose to follow after Christ. If you believe he died for you, if you're one of his people, there's a type of doubt that will come. You will experience now or at some point down the road, but Jesus is also giving us a warning in the second half. 
There is a type of doubt that will undercut, that will deconstruct your faith, that will leave nothing left to stand on, okay? So I want to look at this type of doubt that accompanies belief and this type of doubt that comes and destroys belief. What's incredible at this passage is, is the question asked in verse 3. I mean, we could spend a lot of time thinking about this. But John sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one to come or should we look for another? This is an incredible question by John. Why? Because this is John the Baptist. He's the one who in the womb, when his mother was near Mary, he leapt. He was the one who saw Jesus coming to be baptized, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is John the Baptist, the most famous man of the time. The one that we read all of, of Judea was coming out to be baptized by him. He has more popularity and more fame than Jesus, and yet he understands who Jesus is. He's the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. We read that John actually witnessed uh, the Spirit falling like a dove from heaven on Jesus. But now, the same John who had this verbose faith, the same John who announces who Jesus is at the start of Jesus' ministry, he now is doing what? He's doubting. He's saying, are you the one to come? Or should we look for another? What happened? How is this man of such strong and robust faith? This man who Jesus will say later, there is no one born of a woman greater than John up till now. How is this man doubting? What happened? Well, we get some hints in verse 2. Where is he? He doesn't come straight to Jesus. He's in prison. And not only that, he hears of the deeds of Christ. You may remember John takes on power, and he calls out Herod for marrying his brother's wife. And this lands him in jail. And now as John is sitting in jail, the one who preached of the fire of judgment that was to come, the one who said that the Messiah will come and he will chop down the tree, he will chop off all dead branches, the one who said the day is coming, the Messiah is coming, come, be baptized, be washed, be prepared to re-enter the land rightly as the people of God. Now he sits in jail and not only that, he hears that Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, what's he up to? Well, he's hanging out with tax collectors. He's drinking with them. There's even accusations he might be a drunkard. He's going to parties. He is being accused of being a glutton. John is sitting in prison, miserable, and he's saying, why aren't you raising an army? Where's your anti-establishment message? How in the world could you enjoy table fellowship with a tax collector, one who is in bed with our enemy? What leads to John's doubts? Is it not just ordinary disappointment? Jesus wasn't who he thought he would be. Jesus cites a series of passages from Isaiah. Time doesn't permit us to go into them. He says, look, you tell John what's going on with the blind. You tell John what's going on with the lame, the deaf, the lepers, the poor. Even the dead are being raised. You go back and you tell John what you see. Jesus is saying, read the book again. Read the sacred scriptures again. Yes, there are passages about judgment, but my role at this point, my messianic ministry at this point, is to proclaim good news to the blind, the lame, the deaf, the lepers, the poor, even to see the dead raised. And John, John is still disappointed. This is what led to the troubles. Where is the judgment, Jesus? And what does Jesus say? One of the greatest blessings, the beatitude that you see, I think, in verse 6, right? What does he say? Make this into a shirt. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. 
That's a low bar. And that's what Jesus is saying. You want to know how it, what it looks like to be blessed in his kingdom? The person who's blessed is the person who's just not offended by the way in which Jesus has chosen to work. The passage goes on. We could spend a lot of time thinking about these things. But Jesus then turns to the crowd as they're witnessing this exchange between John's disciples and him. And then he asks of the crowd a question. What did you, what did you expect to see? Then he asks a series of questions, you know. Did you expect to see some weak and unstable teacher who changes with the, the sort of winds of politics? Or did, did you expect to see a king coming out in his luxury apparel? No. You came out to see John because you knew him to be a prophet. And for 400 years, God's people had not heard a prophet's voice speak up. And Jesus cites Malachi 3, 1. And he says, look, this time of fulfillment has come. John was the one who came in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way of the Messiah. He's exactly what you should have expected. Now, verse 12 is subject to some debate, and it's very complicated. Once Lyndon's off pat leave, you can ask him all about this passage. But what Jesus says at least as I'm convinced in this passage, as he looks at the people who also are confused as to who John is and why John is dealing with these doubts, and they're dealing with their own doubts, and he says, the kingdom of heaven has always, always experienced violence, and violent people try to take it away. It, no matter how God works on this earth, it doesn't matter. There's, there's always violent opposition. So this disappointment which leads to doubt if you're reading the book, you would know this is exactly how it was supposed to take place. John is this figure who's come in the spirit of Elijah to pave the way for God's kingdom to break in. And you should not see the persecution and the violence as a sign that something's wrong. If anything, you should see it as a sign that things are going right. What's Jesus doing? He's going to the heart of these doubts. The doubts that come in any life of faith. The doubts that come because things are not working the way you thought they would work. The disappointment, which leads to doubts. I know some of you have watched the television show Ted Lasso. I won't spoil it because I can't even keep up with it. I'm so far behind. But, what, you know, what is the story about? It's about a, a woman who goes through a nasty divorce and out of spite for her husband and his love for his beloved football team, his soccer team, he hires an American football coach to come coach English soccer. But what you find as you watch the series, as people continue to turn on Ted Lasso and continue to have problems with him, you find that he really is indeed an incredible coach and he knows what he's doing. And though his ways are unorthodox and unpredictable, he is indeed building a team. He might not know a lot about soccer, but he knows a ton about teams and he knows how to win. In some senses, this is what Jesus is saying. Yeah, there's disappointment, but you got to trust me. I'm the one. I am the one you had been waiting for. John was the one who paved the way. I am the one who's come. God's kingdom is breaking in. Sure, its ways don't seem as predictable to you. Sure, there's a measure of disappointment. Sure, this leads to doubts, but you've got to trust me. John, the one no greater than any human on earth, finds himself in a long line of God's people, a line of God's people that runs right up this morning to you and to me here in, in, in this auditorium, who are experiencing disappointment and the disappointment breeds doubts. Abraham, child's not coming on his timeline. The disappointment, what does it do? In a foolish moment, he takes a concubine to have a child. He doubts God can fulfill the promise. Moses, can't wait for God's provision. The people are bothering him. He strikes that rock. He doubts God's provision. David, 
My goodness, probably like 30% of the Psalms, depending on how you read them, are him asking God, why have you failed to live up to your promises, O God? They just drip with disappointment and the type of disappointment that comes with doubts. God, are you going to prove to be faithful? Are you going to be the one who, who, who fulfills your promises? Even at the end of Matthew's gospel, we're going to see post-resurrection. We're going to see people come and they worship the resurrected Jesus. And then we will read, and some what? Some doubted. Some doubted. There is a type of doubt that is part of the life of faith. That's why Jude says, be, be gentle to those who doubt. There is a type of doubt that is a part of the life of faith. Maybe I should say this bluntly and this clearly. Closeness with God, maturity in your walk with God, even a robust understanding of the Scriptures does not insulate you from facing the type of disappointment which leads to doubts in your walk with our God. When you experience doubts, this is not a defect in your faith. This is part of what it means to wrestle through a life of faith in a world marred by sin. And I wonder, I really wonder if all of us here have learned it yet. If we've, we've learned this tough lesson that walking faithfully with our Lord will always include moments of disappointment. Or I wonder if we're like so many wealthy Christians who just believe our life, sure, there's going to be some minor setbacks, sure, there's going to be some challenges, but in the grand scheme of things, we're going to look back at those challenges, and they're going to be no big deal. They're not going to be real pain. They're just going to be like, that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger kind of pain, you know, the kind of stuff that makes the victory more glorious. They're going to be the kind of pain of pushing through the marathon, but we know where we're going. We know it's going to win. We know the trend line is going up. We know there's greater peace, greater comfort, greater security, because we are God's people, God hasn't promised to work this way. And the life of some of the most mature and godly saints I know has not worked this way. The Christian life is one with setbacks, with disappointment, with frustration, with pain, even persecution. If you haven't been disappointed with God yet, you will be. You will be, I assure you. This is part of your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus do with these doubts? Well, he goes to the scriptures and he said, you got your expectations all wrong. You missed it. It was right there. You should have seen this. Go tell John the, what, what, what is going on here, the way the Messiah is working. And he tells the crowd, this is exactly what the prophet Malachi was telling you to look for. He says, take your doubts not into the internet, <laughs> where, by the way, no one's doubts get cleared up on the internet, just FYI. You know, take your doubts to God's word and re re realize that the disappointment has come because you had some kind of unstated expectation. You don't have to be married more than a week to find out that all of us go into marriage relationships with these sort of unstated expectation. Oh, I thought the wife always did this because that's what my mother did. You know, it doesn't work very well. If you're single, trust me. Um, these unstated expectations in our relationship with God are just as toxic and they breed disappointment and the disappointment brings doubts. There's a type of doubt that is part of our, our life with God. It's, it's, it's going to be a struggle you have now until the Lord returns, I assure you. But it doesn't have to drive you out of the church, drive you away from the promises of God. It doesn't have to make you part of the grand de-churched movement. In fact, in fact, the only way to live the life of faith is to wrestle through these disappointments and doubts, trusting in the Lord's promises moving forward. So there's a type of doubt that comes... It seems to be deeply rooted in disappointment, which is part of the life of faith, but there's a type of doubt that will lead to a destruction of faith, to the grand de-churching movement. Where do we see this? Well, 
It starts with this question Jesus asks, asks in verse 16. To what shall I compare this generation? He then says this verse that might sound cryptic to you. Of, of, it's a picture, though, of kids who won't be satisfied. You know, the, the picture is kids playing adult. And in the town center, there would be two main sort of moments where the adults come together. There's the dance song for, say, a wedding where everyone comes together and dances. And there's also the dirge that kids would play when, at the time of a funeral where they learn to properly mourn. And they're, they're playing like adults. They're trying to pretend that they're adults. And Jesus is saying, you're like the children who when a dance song is played, you say, I don't want a dance song. I wanted a dirge. I wanted to practice funeral mourning. And when the dirge then is played, you said, well, I'd already got my mind around the dance song. Now I'm in no mood for the dirge. I don't think you have to be a parent to understand what this is like. It's, you know, playing soccer with the child, and they say, I wanted to play baseball. It's taking the child to the library, and they say, I wanted to go see a movie. At the end of the day, what is, what is wrong with the child? The child is just committed to being unhappy because they just want their way. They just want all the attention on them. You know why? Because they're a child. That's what it means to be a child. They're wrestling through what it means to be an individual in a society. Jesus is calling out his generation, and he's saying this. Listen, he's not, the, the, these woes are, are coming at very specific people, but they are great warnings to you this morning. He's saying to these cities where he spent most of his time, he's saying, you saw hundreds of healings. The blind receive sight, the deaf hear. You grew up around these people, now they're seeing? You even saw the dead raised. And when you saw it, he said, oh, I don't know if he's the Messiah. I was expecting a Messiah to come with more judgment. More of, I, I wanted to dance to a dirge. I, di- I, didn't want the, I didn't want the wedding song. I didn't want just the good news. I, needed the, I, wa- I called the other tune. You can't possibly be, be the Messiah because you're not playing the right tune. Maybe I'll illustrate what I'm trying, the point I think Jesus is trying to make this way as I try to move quickly. I think this is important, though. I don't mean to be condescending, but I can't be the only one who's gone down the rabbit hole and asked, what leads to someone becoming a flat earther? Am I the only one? I hope not. The problem is when you watch like one flat earth YouTube video, you're going to get like a hundred recommended for you afterwards. They sort of put you in this sort of algorithm of special people. (laughs) But one of the things that I find so intriguing (laughs) is just just the utter stubborn, stubbornness that exists in the movement. I think most of these people are just trolls. I don't, I don't know that they actually believe these sort of things. But it's just incredible when you, when you find people interacting with the flat earthers and you say, why doesn't the water roll off the edge of the earth, you know? They say, ah, ah. It's because there's mountains at the edges, you know? When you get to the edges, there's actually mountains that keep, keep the water in. Okay, well, what, what about the sailors, you know? How do they, I've met people that have gone from one side and they've crossed the Atlantic or they've crossed the Pacific. How does this work? Oh, well, they're in on the conspiracy or, or you know, the way, that, the way that things pull, it sort of circulates them around. They don't actually, actually go anywhere. They're just going to new land, you know? Yet, utterly absurd. No matter what you think you've got, you think, what about lunar eclipses? How does this work? No matter what piece of data you've got that you think proves the point, that the earth is, is not flat. These people take that data and it only reinforces the narrative that they believe deep down in their heart, okay? Now, again, I am not trying to be condescending. But what I'm saying is, I think you can understand in this movement the type of contrarian, the sort of type of contrarian heart that exists that will discredit all data and sort of reinterpret it based on their highest commitment, this commitment to the earth being flat. If you can understand something of this, you can understand something 
of the way Jesus understands the doubt that can also exist, maybe a doubt that is rooted in pride in this passage. Listen, our church was planted for people who doubted, for people who, there are good arguments for Christianity. I'm not saying that this is, this is something that uh, is a matter of sort of irrationality. You just got to leap off the edge of, of something and believe. There are very, very good arguments as to, to believe, and there are very, very hard questions we have to wrestle through as people who are trying to believe. But what I'm trying to say is this, what I think Jesus is trying to say is this is that our human hearts have a certain bias towards them. And we take that bias into all of our interactions with God as, it, as he relates to us. And that bias makes us distort the data in a way so that all the data conforms to what our primary allegiance is. Am I making some sense? What I'm trying to, maybe, okay, this morning, U.S. plays Sweden women's soccer. And it ends in a dramatic, sorry, spoiler alert, you know, U.S. loses, Sweden wins. And the ball barely, just barely, barely crosses the goal line. And I get on Facebook, just click on Facebook, and I am witnessing an American and a Canadian pastor who should be preparing for their sermon arguing about whether or not that ball crossed the line. Now, which side do you think the American was arguing for? Of course, the side that the ball didn't fully cross the line. Why? Because they want America to win. They want the U.S. to win. And what does the Canadian do? Well, like a true Canadian, they want to rub it in that America lost. You know, this is part of the Canadian story, the Canadian identity. What I'm trying to say is there's a bias, and I think Jesus is trying to say to the people of his day, there is a type of doubt that is welled up deep with pride. And it causes you to distort all the data that is coming at you. And he's saying to watch out for this type of doubt. That's why he says, woe. He pronounces these woes. He's saying you're doomed because rooted in your heart you have a childlike proclivity, disposition, presupposition to distort any claims of authority over you. And what Jesus is saying, we looked at this last week, what did I say about a thousand times? If Jesus isn't everything, Jesus is either everything or he's worse than nothing, but one thing he can't be is just something. What Jesus is saying is he has come. He's announced his salvation He's verified this salvation with these miracles, and yet the very people who have witnessed this, they've seen the data, the kind of data that some of you crave to see. They see the data, and their heart's highest authority distorts the data, and they don't believe. There's a type of doubt rooted in pride, which will bring about these woes, and this is what Jesus is warning all of you about today. There's a type of doubt that comes because you have a proclivity in your heart to say, listen, if Jesus is going to say something about my sexual ethic, if he's going to tell me something about divorce, well, I already have a, a, a preconceived loyalty to where I stand on these issues. I will, not, I will not deal with data that comes outside of this. So I will either reject him or I will say he must be misunderstood. But at the end of the day, I have a preconceived authority that is more important to me and I can't take any data in. Jesus is saying the reason some of you are here, the reason you feel caught up in unbelief, the reason why some of you feel like you share the gospel clearly with others and they won't go is not because of data. Our hearts are like magnets. There's a positive and negative force. And when our hearts are in rebellion to our creator, which the Bible says is our natural disposition, we find ourselves taking data and, being, and pushing it away or misusing it to, to confirm and to buttress our skepticism towards who Jesus is. Now, what am I trying to say? And I'm getting wound up. I'm trying to say this, that there are no neutral observers. Not one of you here is a neutral observer as it relates to these claims of Jesus Christ. You all come into this question with great bias. There's a type of doubt that accompanies the life of faith. It's often rooted in disappointment. But there's also a type of doubt that's rooted in a deep pride. 
that says, I know better, and there is no one who can tell me how to work out the intricate details of my life. That is asking too much. I will not go there. And Jesus is warning you, based on his warning to these passages, that that type of doubt will lead towards destruction. When he says better better are Tyre and Sidon, these sort of uber-wealthy cities of his day, the sort of Las Vegas of his day, the Sin City, they're better off on the Day of Judgment. Sodom, better off on the Day of Judgment than you who hear and witness God's word being proclaimed and see his work amongst his people and yet continue to harden your heart to what is right before your eyes. Unbelief isn't a matter of data. It's a matter of a heart disposition. Now, how do I conclude? I can, let me conclude this way. How do we get unstuck? I'm saying that there's a natural heart disposition which causes us to missee the data. Well, at the very least, what I'm challenging you to do is to acknowledge that that might be very, very much what you have brought into your exploring who Jesus is. And it might be very much what you've brought into your exploring what it means to follow Jesus. And part of what we're seeing in this de-church movement, I think, is these two types of doubts which are pushing and pulling people towards either pole. So how do we get out of this? I think if you're here and you're wondering where it, where it relates to these particular doubts, whether they're the doubts that flourish in the life of faith, cause the life of faith to flourish, are the doubts which lead towards destruction. You very, very much need to come acquainted with your own heart's disposition and your own heart's craving. You need to become self-aware as it relates to what pulls and pushes you. And you need to, with others, think through the claims of Christ. Now, the bias of the people in Jesus' day, particularly the people in uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida, or, yeah, Bethsaida and Capernaum, the bias of their day was that the Messiah was going to come, and when he came, he was going to bring judgment. He was going to bring the sword. He was going to make all things right. Those high-paying, taxing, wicked, colonialist Romans were done with. And they found out their, their Bible is full of highlights about the judgment of God. Highlight here. Highlight here. He will deal with his enemy. He will strike them down. All over their Bible, you'd flip it open. You'd see highlight after highlight. They had celebrated the fact that God was going to come in judgment. And what do we find in this passage? When this mysterious phrase where Jesus says, no one greater than John has been born of a woman, Jesus then says, but the one who's least in the kingdom is greater than even him. What is he saying? Well, Jesus is giving to us a great hint as to how he sees his ministry. They don't see it yet. But he is coming to bring judgment, but he's going to take the judgment upon himself. You see, what Jesus is frustrated that they don't see is they don't see themselves as the type of people deserving God's wrath and anger. They can see it crystal clear in their enemies. They can't see it in themselves. And what is Jesus doing and saying? He's saying, I've come to give sight to the blind. I've come to heal the sick. And I've come to take the judgment of God, the anger and wrath of God upon myself first, that amnesty might be proclaimed to those who, are, those who have eyes to see, that there might be a path towards forgiveness, that you wouldn't have to bear that judgment, that you wouldn't have to stand as a hypocrite before our Lord, that your sins can be forgiven in Jesus Christ but they just don't have eyes to see. John has doubts which come from disappointment. Jesus is telling the people, he's going to do something with the judgment. It's just different than what they saw. He's going to take it upon himself, and in that, all our sins can be forgiven. This morning, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say this. There's a doubt that will be part of your Christian life until the Lord returns. Why does he work this way? It's accompanied by disappointment. There's another doubt that comes from pride, which deep-rooted down, you say, I could run this place better than our Lord. 
I know how he should do things. I know how he should tell us to act in society. I know what type of laws he should give. Thank you very much. This passage is giving to you a warning to watch out. There's a type of doubt that accompanies the life of faith, and there's a type of doubt that leads to destruction. Turn to our Lord. Receive his amnesty. He's taken the judgment. He demands everything of you, but he's given everything for you. This is our Lord. Let's pray. Our Lord, we stand before you and acknowledge that we are indeed people plagued by plagued by doubts. We, tr- we struggle to trust your faithfulness. And Father, it's terrifying to see that some of these doubts are leading so many people to abandon your church, abandon the faith. We ask now, Father, that you would work in our lives, that we would see Christ more clearly, and that in the face of these doubts, your promises would be for us words of hope that we could cling on to. We ask now, Father, as we go to this table, that you would sustain and feed us for all that lies ahead. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.